If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you there? It's podcast time. John is with me. How are you, Head? I'm very good. Very good. I just see your uh, your coughing and spluttering like a smoker there. And the reason I'm saying that is not that I've been trying to make you give up, which I have been for the last 30 odd years, but I'm just back from Dubai. And you know what the strange things? There's lots of strange things there. And we talked about there the other day. Yeah. You can smoke in bars in the bar. Yeah. And you if you're and if you're a non-smoker, you come home smelling. Like I know it's really awful, mad, actually. It is it's awful. really awful. Yeah. It's really awful. No, so I, back from Dubai, I am. Um, do you know who's actually visiting me this this weekend? Dan Ariely, my old mate, the oh, behavioral brilliant. economist. So we're gonna have him on the podcast. And he's all about behavioral economists, right? So what I'm gonna ask him is how do you get people to give up smokes? Right? <laughs> what behavioral little nudges do you have to come up with to give up facts? Yeah. All right. What's the crack? I mean, what is on your mind? Conscious. Yeah, exactly. What is on your mind? Uh, what's on my mind? Well, I tell you, the thing that I'm hearing most about at the moment, everyone is banging on about, is inflation. And in particular, in the building trade. Yes. Uh, now, we need to build the 40,000 houses or whatever it is per year. Yeah. But I was just looking at price increases in the, the building trade. Okay. For instance, softwood timber has increased by 47%. In the last year. This is year on year. This is since 2019 to 2021. Okay, so over the last two years, it's a lot, yeah. yeah. Huge increase. Plywood, 55%. Copper, 62%. You know, for electricity, wiring of housing, and all. Steel coil, 82%. Bricks, 16%. Uh, you know, it goes on and on and on. So what the hell is going on? Okay, now what you've done, I can, I'm going to give you an image. Do you ever go into a restaurant, John, right? The and odd you, time, yeah. And you get a burger, right? And you think, ooh, I wouldn't mind more ketchup on that burger, right? And you're given a, you're given a tube of ketchup, right, with a nozzle. Yeah. <laughs> so think about this, right? Yeah. And you go, and you squeeze it, and you squeeze it, and you squeeze it, and then pff, loads of it comes out, yeah. right? Far too much, right? What's happening in the economy is exactly the same thing. So <laughs> I like this. Go right, on. So that's... That's a bottleneck. That's the image of a bottleneck, right? Mm. The pandemic 
was the weirdest thing. Now, we're going to go and talk to Dario Perkins, who's a real expert on this stuff right. in a couple of minutes. But think about it. The pandemic does two things. First of all, it closes off demand straight away, right? People yeah. were told, you cannot go out, stay in your house, don't buy anything, right? Mm. Or buy online, but you're not, you can't go out, right? First Second thing is that means that supply goes through a massive shift. So loads and loads of factories and companies stop producing. So what happens is we forget that production is a fluid concept, right? Because it's based on this, remember this idea of the evolutionary economy? Yeah. So there's loads of different variables around. If you stop things suddenly, it's almost impossible to imagine restarting them seamlessly. Mm. So what is happening is you're having that catch-up moment, right? So <laughs> right. all the ketchup is in the tube. It hasn't been open for a while. Coagulated. You know those horrible oh, yeah, yeah, places, yeah. right? It's coagulated at the top. Like it really, it's like toothpaste tubes as well. Exactly. So yeah. think about the toothpaste tube. That's a good example, right? Yeah. It's coagulated because obviously you don't brush yeah. your teeth that often, right? So it's coagulated at the top. So, so you squeeze and you squeeze. So you introduce demand straight away, which is John going to get his to brush his teeth yeah. after a week's absence, okay? <laughs> and and the thing, so you're squeezing it and you want to, and you want the tube of toothpaste to deliver the toothpaste in a perfectly symmetrical, non-inflationary yeah. yeah. way, okay? Yeah. Right? With, just with lovely tapered ends. Like, like, a, Colga yeah. like a Colgate ad with a yeah, taper exactly. end, you know, right? Okay. But in actual fact, it was bleh, right? Yeah. And it all comes out in one big yeah. thing, right? And blocks the thing. So that is exactly, so that's inflation, right? So basically what you're seeing is in all those lumber... Uh, and, and bricks and where are, where are the other inflation you were seeing? The copper and steel, everything. So basically, basically. basically, all production was stopped. Then it's rekindled. And what is happening is the price is going up because there's all these supply bottlenecks because people aren't back to work, right? Which is the same reason why you have these shortages now, truck drivers, because again, what you can't do is say to all these fellas, oh, you've no work for 18 months. And then the minute demand comes back in, call them up and expect them to be there straight away because yeah. they're doing other things. Yeah. They've gone up, they, they may be actually doing up their house, right? <clears throat> you know what I mean? They may be doing other things. So, so look at inflation. So there's a difference between aggregate inflation, which is the rate of inflation across all the variables, right? Which is the rate of inflation that actually is the best aggregate snapshot of the economy. And then you have what I call these market-driven problems in various different sectors. So yes, it looks really bad in certain sectors, but on average, inflation is not rising. But the problem is, and it's a difference, we're going to talk to Darry about this, is everybody has their own inflation. Like my inflation is worse than your inflation, yeah, right? Yeah. So if you are, for example, 25 years old, in education, looking to rent, your inflation is unbelievably expensive, right? Because the price of education has gone up quite dramatically and the price of property. But if you are a 65-year-old who is in their own house, yeah. who is not spending a huge amount on things like for education, then your inflation could be very low. And so the question is, everybody's inflation is different. And that's, I suppose, what I would say to assuage your fears about this. But so, so what you're saying is that it's a temporary measure. Yeah, I and, think and, so. And, and therefore, the central bank shouldn't be jumping in to raise interest rates straight Look, away. If the problem is a bottleneck in the soft furnishings sector of the economy, yeah. raising interest rates ain't going to help that. Yeah. That's the whole idea. Enough. So the central there bank There's so many bottlenecks at the moment. Like there's the, the in the building trade is just the examples I gave there, but also 
in the microchip uh, yeah, that market is. that affects phones and cars and computers, the whole lot, whole tech industry. But, but what I'm saying is that look at the economy as something that operates over a long period of time and wait until these anomalies kind of clear themselves out. And if we're in the same position in two years' time, then we've got something to worry about. Right. But I think because the pandemic has been so weird, you know, the interesting thing is people talk about the recession. There was no recession in the pandemic. What there was was a shutdown, yeah. right? And they said, there's no real recovery because it's not as if the economy was actually in recession and we're going to recovery. The economy was put to sleep and people were being paid and now we've got to go back and spend. So I think we shouldn't underestimate how weird these times are and therefore to reimpose the economics of normal times on the economics of abnormal times would probably end to the wrong conclusion and doing the wrong thing. But I think what we should do is let's go over to Dario Perkins in London, a guy who's talking about this all the time, who's got an amazingly interesting take on it, and who's kind of one of the good guys. So let's go over and talk to him. Dario, how are you, man? I haven't seen you for a while. All good? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Not had much of a summer over here, but I did get a week in Portugal, which was quite nice. Yeah, and did you bring COVID back to everybody or just the family? <laughs> no, I took it over there. <laughs> of course you did. Yeah, now, yeah. Huge part of the whole COVID thing, when I say thing, was a profound change in the way in which we did economics. Profound, profound change. And one of those changes was basically the assumption that inflation was something we didn't have to worry about and we could actually open the spigots, we could do some MMT, we could figure out all sorts of things because we didn't have to worry about inflation. You, on the other hand, are dealing with investors every day and they've been worried about inflation for quite some time. Where are we at with that discussion? Well, the thing is, I don't, I don't think they're really worried about inflation. They just want to talk about inflation. So actually, I'm providing some kind of counselling service for investors. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's really been the only thing that people have wanted to talk about for the last six months. And, you know, the big issue is we've had this big pickup in inflation. Um, is that transitory, as central banks say? Or is it the start of some kind of regime shift? Some, you know, are we headed back to the 1970s? And the thing is, even though every investor wants to talk about this, and it's the only thing that they want to talk about, they're all really relaxed about it. I mean, they totally buy in to this view that it's transitory. So it's really a case of people identifying this as a risk, um, but it doesn't seem to be something that people are genuinely concerned about. So Dario, can you explain the transitory idea, this idea that you come out of something as odd as a pandemic here. Your supply lines are all screwed. Your relationships are cut. People are not at work. People are on the PPE here, the, 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 the sort of the government pay. So the economy isn't working as it should be. And therefore, yeah. it's not that unusual that you might get inflation in certain areas. And it's not that unusual to be transitory. Can you explain the whole process to me? Yeah, so the idea is that we, we get this burst of inflation, but then without central banks doing anything, without there being any, any policy tightening, inflation just comes back down by itself. And actually, if central banks were to try to react to the inflation numbers they're seeing right now, because there are lags in, in the system, by the time those policies had an effect, inflation would have already come down. So they just make the situation worse. And I guess the best 
kind of historical parallel is what happened after the Second World War, because we had this, this kind of huge pent up demand um, in the US and the UK. Uh, you had rationing, you had severe supply shortages, you had issues with you know, trying to reintegrate soldiers back into the workforce. Um, so supply was massively constrained, um, demand was, was coming back very strongly. And you got this big shift in the price level but then inflation came down quite quickly without a policy response because um, it would have been unpatriotic to raise interest rates in that in that kind of environment. And I think that that's kind of the template um, that these policymakers have in mind. And you know, the big contrast is what happened after the First World War because we had the same kind of trends after the First World War. But in the UK, we tried to get back to the gold standard. So we did try to force prices lower again. And of course, that ended up giving us a decade of mass unemployment and deflation. So I think this is this is absolutely the right way to, to, to you know to behave coming out of this pandemic. So, so this is fascinating. So basically what you're saying is we have a choice. Uh, the 2020s can either be like the 1920s, which is massive deflation, total and utter collapse of political stability in the center in continental Europe. You can do that in order to get back to the gold standard and some sort of conception, as, as Keynes described, the barbarous relic, right? Or, yeah. or we can have the 1950s, which is unparalleled growth in Europe, unparalleled growth even in the UK, which was kind of limping, and the United States going through arguably its most splendiferous economic decade uh, on record uh, in terms of the massive uplift. And is that the sort of policy that's, which one do you want? I think I think that's the, that's the right way to think about it. And, and I think, you know, the basic point here is that we can't really do anything about the price increases that we're seeing. I mean, and this this comes down. Now, to explain the, that to me. Explain that to me. Yeah. So if you think about where is where's the inflation coming from? So it's very concentrated in a few items that have gone up in price very quickly. Part of this is just, you know, think about what COVID did. I mean, it caused global demand and supply. To collapse and we had this and demand probably fell faster than supply so we had this deflationary fear this time last year you know bond markets were pricing in this massive deflationary skew everybody was worried about what central banks were going to do next you know well we're going to have to go down helicopter money and all of that stuff and then as we've 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 tried to come out of covid um, both demand and supply have recovered um, but demand has picked up much more quickly than supply. So we're getting this very intense supply disruption and bottlenecks and shortages. And you see this all over the world. I mean, you know, global shipping is in a complete mess. You have scarcity of, you know, all kinds of commodities. We have problems in semiconductors. We have all these logistical problems. Uh, and we know that, you know, when there are big shifts in activity, you always get these kinds of pressures. I mean, this is, this is what's called the bullwhip effect, which is that if you have a, a relatively small change in demand, it causes these big kind of accumulation of pressures down the supply chain. And of course, what we're talking about here is the biggest contraction and expansion in global growth in 300 years. So yes, this is causing very profound problems through supply chains. Um, but it isn't clear that raising interest rates is, is the way to deal with that problem. You just have to kind of let this work its way out of the system again. And if you were to try to deal with that by tightening policy, I think you'd make the situation a lot worse. No, I mean, it seems to me that that what we're dealing with, as you say, it's just, it's, this is this is, this is is a unique situation. And always, you know, time does, I know it sounds trite and cliche, but time does sort a lot of things out. You know, things do unravel 
and then things get put back together again. So what you're saying is don't be so freaked out that new car or used car sales or used, used car prices in America are going through the roof or don't be so freaked out by the price of lumber or don't be so freaked out by the supply chain disruption over to Asia because again, things have been moribund for a year and a half and that's kind of what happens. You need The engine needs to slowly get back up to speed. Is that That's what we're kind of talking yeah. about. Yeah, you have. I mean, you have the base effects, which I, I know you did a podcast on a few months ago, uh, which is that prices that were falling this time last year are rising now. So you, that immediately translates into a big increase in inflation. You have supply disruptions in things like semiconductors, car rentals, used cars, lumber, you know, all of the things that you, you outlined, semiconductors, shipping, all of that stuff. Um, you have you know, tomatoes rotting in fields in Italy because they can't get steel from China to export Passata, which is a big concern for me, obviously. As being um, a half Italian, absolutely. <laughs> Italians, the, the Italians, remember it was Napoleon said that the, uh, obviously the army marches on its stomach, but every time you go to Italy, you realize that the nation simply lives and dies by every lunch it consumes. And, you know, food rage is a real thing in Italy. I mean, you, you see how upset they get on Twitter when, you know, the English tried to make carbonara and, and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's, a big, it's a big political issue. <laughs> uh, and then you have, you know, a whole bunch of kind of one-off cost increases. So you think about, um, you know, coming out of this pandemic, uh, you've got all these companies operating under reduced capacity, new health and safety regulations. Things like, you know, the price of haircuts, which doesn't affect me because obviously I don't have any hair. Um, you know, that that stuff is going through the roof. That's a one-off price increase, a cost increase that, that companies are trying to pass on. Um, but I think, you know, these kinds of dynamics uh, will settle down eventually. I mean, we don't know, you know, how quickly we're going to come out of this pandemic. We still have new variants. We still have you new know, problems. These, these issues could persist for a while. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't think this is the start of some big wage price spiral. And actually, you, you even have these kinds of supply bottlenecks in labour markets because, um, you know, a lot of people are struggling to go back to work. Um, they can't get the, the childcare or they haven't been able to get the childcare until the schools have reopened. Um, they're still concerned about COVID, particularly if they work in particular industries, particular sectors. So there's even shortages of, of workers. And in a, in a, you know, I've, I've talked before about how um, inflation is ultimately about power. And if you want to get, you know, serious inflation, you have to have pricing power. You have to have worker power. You have to, you have to be in a situation where workers can demand big wage increases, and then companies can pass that on. And that's what happened in the in the 1970s. But we're so, you know, far detached from what happened in the 1970s. There's little pockets of worker power because, you know, the fact that these workers can't come back into work, you're seeing companies having to raise wages. But again, most of that looks like a kind of bottleneck or a, or a temporary factor. Um, I think there is, there is a story about whether the longer term inflation outlook is changing. And that's about whether we're, we're going to get different type of power dynamics eventually coming out of this crisis. So this is what we talked about a few months ago, yeah. the new kind of super cycle, an MMT. And let's you know, explore that a bit. Let's explore that a bit, because that's a, that's fascinating to put it a kind of a big super cycle framework. And once you have a framework, then the world makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. So, so this is the idea that um, we've had these kind of big 30, 40 year super cycles in the global economy, kind of macro, finance, politics. 
And the last one you know, started in the late 70s when we'd had a massive inflation problem and you know, inflation was dominating everything. And then we had Reaganomics and Thatcher. Thatcherism, and it came in and it crushed worker power and it crushed the, crushed the unions and it globalized markets and it opened up finance. And then we were in this kind of 30, 30 40 year um, super cycle of low inflation, neoliberalism. Um, and it was, you know, eventually it led to, to massive inequality, asset price bubbles, you know, all of the, the bad stuff that we've had over the last decade. And I think we're starting to see the first challenge to that. So, you know, this kind of neoliberal uh, regime seems to be starting to, to come to an end. And obviously, Bidenomics in the US is a big attack yes. on that. But I think we're at the very beginning of that process. And I think you can look at the world and say something is changing here. And maybe eventually we'll get back to something, you know, a bit more like the world that we had after the after the Second World War. You know, one in which workers are a bit more empowered and they can push for wages and companies can can push for, for price increases. But I think we're a long way from that. And I think, you know, the, the big kind of inflation Easters, if you want to call them that, those guys that are out there talking about inflation is here and it's coming back. And there's quite a few of them. There's quite a few of them. There are a few. Um, and... I think they're confusing those two stories. They're confusing uh, what we're seeing in the data right now, which is you know massively transitory. It's all about COVID. I mean, you can just see the COVID imprint on the data and this longer term story about how the world might be changing. And I think you know that they're, they're putting those two stories together and I think they're very different and they could be separated by you know big time span. I mean, we could be talking decades before we start to worry about, you know, central banks that aren't independent and governments that are doing too much in terms of stimulating their economy. Um, you know, I, I don't think those two stories overlap. And I think that's causing an enormous amount of confusion in financial markets. Yes, it's also not just in financial markets. I see it with, for example, our own government introduced uh, the other day a big, big initiative on housing, because we've got to build a lot of houses here. Uh, by my own Kind of back of the envelope calculations, we'd need to do about 45,000 per annum, okay, units, houses, apartments, whatever. The, the, the government said came out with you know, a figure of 33,000, right? Now, half of my sense of them being nervous is that the mandarins who still work in the Department of Finance here are inflationistas, right? They're kind of saying, look, we're, we're, we're on the cusp of something we need to fix it, but we can't fix it as much as you'd like to because you know what? Inflation's around the corner. So it's not just financial markets. I think policymakers are also in that sort of frame of mind where they're not too sure to back their own judgment. And again, unfortunately, in economics, a lot of the people still making the major decisions, they were children of the late 70s. So they have an inflation thing in their heads. Would you go yeah. along with that? I think that's true. I mean, you, you see that. I mean, the investors who are most concerned about inflation are the ones that remember the 1970s. You can look at consumer surveys of inflation expectations. You know, it's the older demographics who are so concerned. You know, if, you, if you're, you know, in your 20s or 30s, it seems completely bizarre to worry about this world that, you know, they haven't lived in before. And that's just a bias. You know, this, this is a bias in the way that people perceive inflation. And I think... You know, that's a big story. When we survey people, we see that inflation expectations are heavily distorted by people's own experience of inflation and also by the stuff that they buy most frequently. So, um, you know, if oil prices are going up quickly, if um, grocery prices are going up quickly, 
that tends to have a big effect on, on people's expectations of inflation, just because it's the stuff that they see going up in price all the time. When I used to get this at the, the Treasury, so one of my first jobs at the UK Treasury was to do briefing on inflation for government ministers. And every week we got these letters saying, why are you lying to the public? You know, you say that inflation is 2%, but this week I bought a can of, of baked beans and it was 72p and last week it was 50p. How on earth is that 2% inflation? You know, so we get these big kind of psychological biases and, and um, you know, that, that affects the way that people perceive inflation. But I think, you know, a lot of this is just a myth. You know, I, I think it would be very difficult to to go back to the 1970s. I don't think that policymakers could recreate that climate, even if they tried really hard. But you can also, Dario, understand, for example, you talked about the 20s and 30s, that big, big generation who are being screwed in the housing market, on the rental market. And when they hear, you know, economists coming on and say, well, actually, inflation is at an all-time low. It's a, you know, 1% or 2% or something. They're saying, hold on a second. My inflation so, you know, it could be that idea. I think there was something at the beginning of the 2008 crisis. Somebody was talking about the recession. And somebody said, well, it's not your recession. It's my recession. So to what extent is my inflation more important than inflation as an indicator or as a concept or as a feeling? Well, I mean, you know, as I said, I think everyone has a, a distorted idea about where inflation is. I mean, you know, these inflation measures, I mean, they're, they're really the best they're the best macro data we have because you know they're quite easy to collect you send people out to shops and they collect the data and they measure and they, they do it for a huge number of items you know a huge a huge a huge variety of goods and services and you know as far as economic data go they're probably the best indicators we have but you know stuff like housing um isn't always included in those measures so if you're listening to this podcast you and i are trained economists we <laughs> say, oh, you know, with housing, house, house prices aren't in, in inflation because it's a cost, so we look towards rents, whatever. The average person thinks, is, I hear, why not? Like, <laughs> we've, we've just well, assumed well, it away. But that's the reason, you know, the, the history of this is that um, housing is an investment, uh, and that's not what we're supposed to be measuring. We're supposed to be measuring consumer goods. In reality, inflation measures are a bit of a mess because you have – um, you have kind of semi-durable stuff. You have things like washing machines. You know, my my wife buys a new coat. She tells me that's an investment. It <laughs> is know, an so investment. She's absolutely right. Ultimately, ultimately, I think that um, you have to think about it in practical terms. And, and what is it that central banks are trying to deal with? And I think their argument is that when you put things like housing in, then you may as well put things like equity markets in. And then these indicators are going to become very, very volatile. And they don't want that type of volatility. They want to get a sense of, of how much demand there is in the economy. And, um, and you know, trying to use interest rates to, to slow demand when it's becoming excessive and, and ease, you know, when demand is, is too weak. So I, I, I still think you have to look at those types of things because, you know, obviously we had the subprime crisis. We had the housing bubbles. Um, you can't have policymakers just ignoring these things. But I think they believe that there are better tools for dealing with those kinds of risks than just raising up interest rates and trying to squeeze sure. the economy. Now, just before you go, COVID, right? When you're talking to investors now, is there a sense that some of them are kind of thinking, is this thing ever going to go away? Because yeah. had we talked in June, we'd have been pretty sanguine. We were all getting vaccinated. You guys were all vaccinated. The Delta hadn't reemerged. It hadn't arrived. Uh 
And there was a sense of, you know, this, this thing's going to just peter out over the course of the next while with a combination of vaccines in particular. What's your sense now of where COVID is and where the economy is with COVID? Uh, most investors have, have not really thought about COVID for the past 12 months. You know, we had that, we had, you know, when it when it struck, you had this big collapse in, in global stock markets and you had, you know, all kinds of, a, a real danger of a financial crisis, you know, this kind of feedback loop between financial markets and the real economy. And central banks, you know, stopped that. They, they kind of halted that process in its tracks. And then it's been quite hard to get investors to think about COVID ever since then, rightly or wrongly. Now, I think you're right that there's been this perception uh, that we're always about to exit this crisis. You know, you go, when it started, it was supposed to be a, a three month problem. It was supposed to be SARS, you know, a one quarter effect on GDP. And then we got, well, you know, it will disappear, you know, during the summer. This was last year. We got to the autumn and suddenly we've got a new wave. And then, you know, by the end of the by the end of the the kind of winter, you had the vaccines, and then you had this perception that okay, well now it has to go because we've got the vaccines, and that's the silver bullet that's going to get us out of this. And then we've had this other wave. Now I think you know the thing that I I think investors draw some assurances from is is what's happened in the UK over this latest wave. So we got Delta, um, you know, before most other you know European countries before the US. And, you know, this wave has looked very, very different to the previous waves. You know, we've, we've had huge numbers of people catching COVID, but the health impact has been, you know, radically different. We haven't had the pressure on hospitals. And really, from a policy point of view, that's what they care about most. You know, we can't be in a situation where the NHS is being overrun and there's ambulances queuing outside hospitals and people can't get the, the health care. So I think now, you know, they've been treating this a bit more like something like swine flu. You know, it's a nasty illness. You don't want to get it, but it doesn't mean you have to lock down, shut everything down. And, you know, on the basis of what's happened in the UK over the last six months, that's still pretty much holds. The question, you know, is going to be if we start to get new variants of this and they do start to dodge the vaccines, you know, we're going to need booster shots. And, you know, there is a risk, I guess, that the, the, the policy is always slightly behind the virus. So, you, yes, you can change the vaccines, you can have booster shots, but we're always slightly behind and the, the health services are always slightly close to the brink. So then you need more restrictions. And I do, you know, it is just over the last few weeks that the, the discussion with investors has started to change a little bit. And I, I'm starting to get this question, well, is it ever going to go away? And if it doesn't, you know, what will the world look like? Um, so this is the idea. What do you that say to maybe, them? <laughs> well, you know, again, it's the it's the it's the Perkins counselling service. Yeah, it's it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like a, a shrink for rich people. <laughs> you know, I, uh, <laughs> I, I you know I tried to to take some comfort from what's happened in the UK and and the fact that it has looked very different. I guess you know we, we just have a lot more disruption that you know we'd have kind of more stop-start growth that the cycle never really gets going. And I think in that world, you know, the supply disruption probably continues. I don't think that gets you into this world of kind of rampant 1970s inflation. But we could be in a world where inflation becomes much more volatile. 
you know, it, it suddenly peaks, it comes down very sharply, it then rebounds again. That would be quite different to the world that we've been in. Because when you look at the, the kind of long history of inflation, you had these peaks, you know, after the after the First World War, peak after the Second World War. Every time there's an energy crisis or an increase in oil prices or whatever, the inflation rate peaks and it comes down quite quite quickly again. It's really only the 1970s where you had this trend increase in inflation that lasted about 15 years and then a trend decline in inflation that lasted you know, another 20 years. Um, but maybe we're in a world now where you don't have the trend increase or the trend decline, you just have volatility. And I think that's going to be quite hard for investors and policymakers to deal with. And you know, the question for central banks is really going to be if inflation is more volatile and maybe settles slightly above their targets, what do they do? And I think, you know, the best case here is, is what happened after, after the global financial crisis in the UK. You know, we can talk about the First World War, we can talk about the Second World War, but we do have this period of transitory inflation after the, after the global financial crisis, which is when, um, you know, sterling tanked, you had it big increases in oil prices, you had fat hikes in the UK, UK inflation hit 5% and it stayed there, you know, it stayed well above target for about two and a half years. The Bank of England had to write letters every month explaining why it was missing its target. And I was at the receiving end of those letters at the Treasury. You know, Mervyn King desperately trying to explain what was going on and, and, you know, making excuses. But the bank basically ignored it. You know, it looked through it and it said, well, when we look at the state of our economy, we can see that unemployment is high. We can see the economy is weak. And so, yes, inflation is temporarily high, but we think it's going to come down again. And we need to focus on the on the longer term because that's our contribution to policy. And so maybe, you know, that's the template for this time around. But central banks will ignore it. It will be volatile. Maybe it will be a bit above their targets for a while, but they won't react to it. The difficulty is whether they can really hold their nerve. You know, there's only so long that these policymakers can keep saying it's transitory, it's transitory, it's transitory. And if, you know, two, two and a half years down the line, we're still getting all of these distortions and we're still in a mess with the supply side, then, you know, can they keep using that T word? Well, let's, let's hope for a little bit of wisdom, because I think wisdom is in short supply here. You know, the idea... <laughs> Well, it's the confidence to see beyond things, you know, confidence to see beyond the next quarterly data. And I hope they hold their nerve because I think if you jack up interest rates now, even even slightly, it changes the ball game completely because I don't think we're out of this thing by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, this, this, this pressure that they're under isn't helpful. I mean, you know, people in financial markets, these kind of inflation Easter's, piling the pressure on these central banks. It isn't helpful. And your mate, Andy Haldane, is part of this, because I don't know if you read his... Oh, I saw shot. that. Yeah, yeah. You know, his, his party shot, shot was... Shot the Bank of England. But I mean, that was, you know, if you're an insider at the Bank of England, that's pretty shocking. I mean, he basically said that he was becoming more and more uncomfortable with, with central banking and what was happening in central uh, bank. They were losing their independence, that we were facing a Minsky moment for central banking. You know, that, that's really piles the pressure. Yeah, no, it on. does. It does. Fact, yeah. Saying we're going to repeat the 1970s is pretty much the worst thing you, you can, can say possibly say. Bank. No, no, it's true. You know, the whole institutions have been informed by the 1970s. The 1970s is what gave them their independence. It's what changed monetary policy permanently. And so any risk of going back to that, you know, they have to take that seriously, unfortunately. I'm just thinking Andy Haldane as Bond Vigilante, as intellectual <laughs> vigilante in the thing. Darry, we'll leave it there. Fascinating <laughs> stuff. Fascinating stuff. And uh, we will talk to you soon. All right. Take care. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Who knew that inflation could be so interesting? You love it. <laughs> I love it, don't you? I do. I do, actually. But you know what? While Jaria was talking there, it really reminded me of Neil Howe. Do you remember we had Neil Howe on before? He's the guy who wrote that book, The Fourth Turning. Yes. Great, great thinker. Proper. Interesting. You know, when you were talking about in terms of decades and, and long time frames. Yes. That's what, what Neil <clears throat> Howe spoke about in terms of, he was kind of saying that the decade that you are born into kind of defines your worldview. Yes, and I think it does. And also what's all, also interesting, if you take the Howian view, Ooh, okay, yeah. we'll give him a Howian, yeah. uh, is the, the, no- view. Uh, the Howian view, is the notion also, not only that the decade is important, but that my inflation is as important as your inflation. Yes. So it's the same idea. So everybody's personal experience with anything defines our perception of everything. So if you think, for example, if you ever meet people whose parents went bankrupt, mm. they have a very different relationship with money yeah, to yeah. people whose parents did not go bankrupt. So your relationship with money is a function of many things, one of which is your experience with money. and your ex- Well, I have to say, just on that note, I have a pathological fear of being in debt. And that was because when I moved to London first, I fell into huge debt and the stress of it was enormous. But as a result of that, I have a, you know, complete fear of, of being in That's debt. That's interesting. No, and I think lots of people listening will have had the same experience, particularly here in, at the end of the Celtic Tiger and that period between mm. 2007, six, seven, eight, and 2015 of negative equity, of debt, of bailiffs, of sheriffs coming, of not being able to not just pay the rent, but not being able to see any way out of it. And yeah. I, I happen to think that, if we're talking about debt, I happen to think that the uh, Bible is very interesting in this, John. So uh-huh. in Deuteronomy, 
<laughs> and Leviticus. These are books that I read late at night, okay? No, there's a big part of biblical thinking on debt forgiveness that basically you cannot expect your neighbor to be a good neighbor if you have them consistently in debt, right? And so the Bible and the, the people who wrote the Bible, just think about the wise men who wrote the Bible, they were very explicit that we have to have debt forgiveness at certain periods. Mm. And it was called in the Bible, the Jubilee year. So it was meant to be once every seven years, you settle debts and you negotiate them. And, and I think it's extraordinarily important because debt destroys people. There's actually a great book by a guy called David Graeber passed away last year, called Debt, A 5,000-Year History. And so it starts really way back. And Graeber was an American anarchist, an anthropologist, first of all, but an anarchist anthropologist, very fascinating guy. But his his main thesis is that debt is the most debilitating, most obnoxious, and most insufferable position that anybody can be in. Bondage, debt, slavery, all those sort of things. So... You know, and you experience it in London a little bit, but lots of people experience it all their lives. Yeah. And it's incredibly stressful. Incredibly stressful. But in, in terms of this whole idea of my inflation. Yes. And the official inflation figures. Yeah. How accurate then? Well, you know, when they when they produce inflation figures, like they're not really accurate because they well, don't they, really apply. They're just a big generalization. Well, they, well that, that's statistics for you, you know, that basically statistics is very unusual. Statistics is hyper-objective. So a statistician has to be hyper-objective. But we are all subjective. Mm. So you see a thing like the rate of inflation is 2%. And you say, well, my rate of inflation is not 2%. My rate of inflation is 20%. Yeah. So, for example, if if you look at the things that inflation... Things that have been runaway inflation in the last few years are healthcare, education, and rents. Okay, yeah. those three things that where inflation has been falling profoundly is mobile phones, technology, laptops, etc. But if you are in education and you are paying for private education, right? Are you paying for education in third or fourth level here? Mm. And you're renting. The rate of inflation that you face every week, every month, is much higher than the rate of inflation of, say, for example, a homeowner who's 65 or 70 who changes phone every couple of months, right? Or who flies Ryanair, yeah, right? So what I find fascinating, and we'll kind of conclude on this, is that my rate of inflation is actually what causes social unrest, not the general rate of inflation. So, to, and to go back to the Neil Howe idea, is that your personal experience with anything dictates how you feel. So if you are young in Ireland or anywhere in the world, the rate of inflation that is most opposite to you is rents or house prices. And it doesn't matter to you if actual fact the rate of inflation in oil prices is low because you don't have a car. Exactly, yeah. So there was a problem then is how do you subjectify the objective? Right? So the objective is the general rate of inflation, yeah. which is, is what it is. But the fact that most people don't feel it, and those who don't feel it don't worry about it, but those who feel it, those who feel that this is wrong, worry excessively about it, is actually the source of class war, generational war, 
and the nitty-gritty of politics that, John, we are seeing playing out in this country, but all over the world, because the people who are in who are affected by a high rate of inflation don't believe any more official statistics. And once you don't believe official statistics, then you stop believing anything from officialdom. Mm. And then you become the skeptical nation, skeptical country. And that, as you and I have talked about over the last couple of years, pushes you very close to listening to the people who say, don't worry about this, I have a solution. Make America great again, take back control, mm. all that sort of stuff. So it is dangerous. Economics, when not explained properly, I think is one of the most dangerous things in the world. I'd like to thank all our Patreon supporters, because without you, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you all very, very much. And we have a little treat for you coming up. We have a new online course. We have a new entire podcast monetary economics course I mean, monetary economics at the moment is so important and we have a fantastic course we're just finishing it it's going to be with you probably end september john or first of october i would say mid-october 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 you saw your look you flirt with me you tell me it's going to go ahead then you say it's not you it's me what's the story mid-october <laughs> i've got ahead and had all your shots <laughs> <laughs> all right there you go Talk to you later. And again, thanks so much for supporting us.